Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I am still here in beautiful but soggy uh, Washington State in the San Juan Islands, and um, I. kind of dropped the ball on nailing down a guest for today. And I also kind of dropped the ball on, uh, I was thinking about doing one of those sort of, um, we never really came up with a name for him, sidebar, interstitial, you know, sort of red essay things. And I, I, I got something I want to do a little bit on that front, but um, I sort of just decided to, as befits a podcast, call an audible and, um, I'm going to do this as a solo remnant. And then maybe for the Friday one, we'll do like one of the drive time things with the, with the youngsters. Um, so where to begin? Um, I've only been able to listen to bits and pieces of the Supreme court coverage. Um, it's fascinating to me that we are at this point where I think the safe the the better bet is that uh that roe is going to be either overturned or meaningfully and significantly revised in a pro-life direction um you know for my own views on abortion and all that uh you can go back and and listen to the podcast i did essentially on abortion um and i also did several with guests about abortion um but I found that, like, um, this is a pretty profound sea change moment in, in American politics. And I think it, even if I am wrong and they uphold Roe, it'll be a sea change moment in American politics. Because if you get um, this many Federalist Society type judges on the Supreme Court um, ratifying Roe and Casey, it will do a lot to shatter the conservative legal movement. And, um, um, and there's no coming back from, from that about what that does to sort of intellectual conservatism, Republican politics, the politics of the court, politics of social issues, culture war stuff, just go down the line. It's, it's, it would be a major fundamental, uh, new path. And if they do, you know, significantly pull back, repeal uphold the mississippi the dobbs you know uh case however it actually manifests itself that'll be a huge sea change um for some republican conservative legal types it will be 
you know, mission accomplished. And for others, it will be opening up new fronts in the war, so to speak, where all of a sudden the action is going to be on the state level. I still am one of these people who thinks it's better for the country if that kind of action is at the state level for you know reasons that should be familiar to people. Um, I think picking one size fits all policies for the entire country um, is is not good. And I understand that, like, if you think that there are certain there are certain policies that should be one size fits all for the entire country, um, like laws against murder, right? Um, or upholding the first amendment. Um, you can come down on that argument, pro-life or pro-choice to say we should have one policy across the country, depending on how you define the issue. If you think it is a fundamental constitutional right to be able to have abortion on demand, then you should think that right doesn't go away when you cross state lines. Similarly, if you think, uh, the unborn, uh, fetus has a um, absolute right to life. And that right doesn't change when you cross state lines. You could think we have a, um, absolute national, uh, policy that shouldn't change when you cross state lines. And so I think that those arguments can cancel each other out. The reason why I think it's better to send it back to the States is that first of all, that's where it was up until, you know, uh, when I, you know, early 1970s. And second of all, the constitution is just simply silent on the matter. You know, that's part of the problem with Roe is that it's made up law. Um, and, you know, a lot of liberal pro-choice legal scholars basically agree with that, including people you know, like the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And typically when the Constitution is silent on stuff, the, the states have the power to regulate it, um, those issues, um, not the federal government and not the Supreme Court. And so anyway, I'm a federalism guy. I'm a subsidiarity guy. Sending things down to the most local level possible, I think, is um, when, all, when, when the Constitution is silent on such things, uh, that's preferable. Um, what I thought was really kind of fascinating was the Sonia Sotomayor excerpts that I caught, you know, where she was saying, you know, isn't the beginning of life basically a religious question? And um, yes, it is. It's absolutely a religious question. Uh, it's also a scientific question. If you look at, um, you know, biology textbooks, the beginning of human life is pretty much where the pro-lifers say it is. Um, you know, you can have an argument about how much meaning and value to put on a fertilized egg you know, or a blastocyst or, or an embryo, we can have those debates, but that's the beginning of life. And that's not a religious question. In fact, religions were often wrong about this stuff for a very long time in terms of the science. Zoe, go away. Stop it. Sorry. The dingo is schnozzling and licking me. Um, actually, I'm going to get up and see if I can get her to get out of here. Hold on one second. Zoe. Zoe. My takeaway from that is that Zoe does not like abortion talk. Um, so where was I? Uh, 
you know, but this weird partisan talking point, and, and I do think Sana Sayur tells on herself, you know, she's more than, I would say she's the most hackish Supreme Court justice. And her assumption, you know, the, the, the trick that she plays, which a lot of partisans play on both sides of the aisle, is that when you disagree with her, that's proof that you're being partisan. When in reality, she's being partisan and she's trying to use the charge of partisanship to police people who are being less partisan. But at least that's my read on her and from people I know who, who are major court gossips and watchers and whatnot. Um, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, but this idea that somehow the question of when life begins is a religious question. It's a really interesting way of, it's a, it's a really interesting tell about how you view this stuff because the vast majority of criminal laws that we have um, have their roots in religion. At some point, you trace it back far enough because they have their roots in things like the Ten Commandments. Um, you know, uh, you know, before before Jeremy Bentham, Bentham or the Utilitarians or you know Peter Singer or the Philosophes or any of those guys showed up on the scene, um, "Thou shalt not kill" was um, a pretty well established moral law rooted in religious precepts, and you can make you know, you can do these chicken or the egg things, sort of like that little back and forth I got into with Will Salatan about kosher laws. You can make the argument that certain religious customs or rules have practical or pragmatic justifications um, or rationalizations to them. And that's fine because sometimes they do, but uh, you're never going to solve the chicken or the egg part um, completely because they, so many of these things are born in, um, religion because prior to a few hundred years ago, um, religion was the source of all law and, um, to one extent or another, uh, you know, even if, even if you think the monarch was the source of all law, the monarch's authority came from a divine right of Kings. So, I mean, you can just, it's, it's turtles all the way back. And, uh, if you're going to say that a question uh, that you cannot you cannot make these decisions because this is ultimately a religious question, well, where does that end? I mean, you know, the value of human life in general is um, deeply soaked in religion. You know, why why can't I murder somebody? If your only arguments against murder are pragmatic or utilitarian or consequentialist, you're going to get yourself into some real trouble really very quickly. And the very, or at the very least, if your only arguments against things like murder, um, arrest on this idea that, um, if someone has a religious justification for, for prohibitions against such things and not just murder crime, you know, thou shalt not steal, um, you can go down a long list. Um, if you think that religious, because there are religious justifications for something that therefore the state has to stay out of it, um, you're basically going to get out, uh, you're going to have to make an argument about why your state should be involved in almost any policing of human conduct. And I want the state to be involved in fairly 
limited number of areas about human conduct, but I, I'm, I'm pretty solidly in favor of laws against murder, laws against rape, um, laws against stealing. And, um, I'm not, I'm not an anarchist about any of that kind of stuff. And let's be fair to the anarchists. Like those kinds of behaviors would be punished. Um, in even the purest anarchist societies, they just wouldn't be punished by some large state apparatus. You know, people would take, you know, there'd be a little more rough justice going on. But this sort of gets me to um, the issue of dogma. And you guys have heard me talk about it a lot um, in my um, uh, classically underrated book, Tyranny and Clichés. I wrote a, a whole chapter on dogma, and I'm going to it's a little difficult for me because I got to do it from the computer, but I'm going to try and read you some of this to sort of uh, uh, lay out where I come from. Um, so I'm going to begin with a quote from uh, my man G.K. Chesterton. It says, uh, If it really be true that men sickened of sacred words and wearied of theology, if this largely unreasoning irritation against quote-unquote dogma did arise out of some ridiculous excess of such things among priests in the past, then I fancy we must be laying up a fine crop of cant for our descendants to grow tired of. And then this is me. The dawn of the Enlightenment, it was assured, spelled the end of the long night of dogma. Generations of superstition, tradition, and myth had accumulated like piles carpeting the Augean stables, proclaimed the philosophes, all that was necessary to liberate man was to clean out the muck and excrement. The war on dogma was intended to be both a collective endeavor and a personal one. Descartes, for instance, attempted to purge his mind of any and all notions and then only to readmit those he could personally verify with the tools of reason and logic. On a much broader landscape, the forces of enlightenment set out to pry off the dead hand of the past so that mankind could escape the clutches of the past and take flight on the wings of their ideals. As we've seen, perhaps even belabored, the pragmatists considered delegitimizing de the authority of the past to be among their noblest endeavors. And so, like, that's just a reference to the fact that I am the international co-chair of the American Pragmatism Haters Club, and I, we can talk about that another time. And I'm talking about not American practica practicality or America's can-do spirit but the philosophical pragmatism of people like Dewey and James and whatnot, even though I'm a fan of James, uh, not so much Dewey. All right. So anyway, dogmas are ideals broken in by time and consecrated by experience. As such, what dogma lacks in inspiration, it makes up for in sober reliability. But before anyone can suggest a dogma be tossed into the dustbin of history as an unnecessary relic of the way things once were, it must first be born as an ideal, new, exciting, and revolutionary. As ideals, they are intoxicating. They can be, as Dostoevsky put it, the fire in the minds of men. The Russian revolutionaries, disciples of their Jacobin forebears, insisted that the latticework of dogma supporting czarism institutionalized arbitrary abuses of power, torture, and cruelty. And they were right. And the defenders of the regime responded that overthrowing the status quo would usher in an age of cruelty and barbarism, the likes of which humanity had never seen. And they were right too. The dogma of the czars killed thousands, but the dogmas of Marxism, dressed in the uniform of science and reason, slaughtered and enslaved hundreds of millions. Hitler was obsessed with the need to throw off the dogmas of Christianity's slave morality. 
Christianity, of course, has reached the peak of absurdity, Hitler insisted in 1941. And that's why one day its structure will collapse. Science has already impregnated humanity. Consequently, the more Christianity clings to its dogmas, the quicker it will decline. And I'll skip this long quote from the from Der Fuhrer, picking up afterwards. Of course, not all or even remotely most sworn enemies of dogma embrace genocidal ideas. But that is because they uncritically embrace an equally dogmatic aversion to mass murder. We create dogmas so that we may understand what is good and right in our everyday lives. Hence, the Greek root for the word dogma seems good. When the academics proclaim we must cleanse humanity of its dogmas, what they are in effect arguing is that we must shed humanity of its humanity. Quote, man can be defined as an animal that makes dogmas. As he piles doctrine on doctrine and conclusion on conclusion in the formation of some tremendous scheme of philosophy and religion, he is, in the only legitimate sense, becoming more and more human, writes G.K. Chesterton, the greatest defender of dogma properly understood in the English language. Chesterton continues, when man drops one doctrine after another in a refined skepticism, when he declines to tie himself to a system, when he says that he has outgrown definitions, when he says that he, is dis- that he disbelieves in finality, when, in his own imagination, he sits as God, holding no form or creed, but compelling all, then he is, by that very process, sinking slowly backwards into the vagueness of the vagrant animals and the unconsciousness of the grass. Trees have no dogmas. Turnips are singularly broad-minded. Alas, this point has been lost on a generation of brilliant turnips. Am I a criminal? Asked the late Jack Kevorkian. The world knows I'm not a criminal. What are they trying to put me in jail for? You've lost common sense in the society because of religious fanaticism and dogma. Franz Boas, and I've never really known how to pronounce his name, Franz Boas explained that the roots of his genius stem from the fact that his parents, quote, had broken through the shackles of dogma. When people are the least sure, John Kenneth Galbraith assured us, they are often the most dogmatic. Nothing is more dangerous, warns Stephen Jay Gould, than a dogmatic worldview. Nothing more constraining, more blinding to innovation, more destructive of openness to novelty, unquote. When longtime New York Times columnist Anthony Lewis sought to sum up the lessons of his career, he explained that the greatest enemy we face is certainty. Quote, certainty is the enemy of decency and humanity and people who are sure they are right, like Osama bin Laden and John Ashcroft. Unquote. <laughs> this raises a few concerns. To begin, Lewis's conclusion begs a simple question. Is Lewis really sure about this? I mean, if you're certain, I'm going to read that again. This raises a few concerns. To begin, Lewis's conclusion raises a simple question. Is Lewis really sure about this? I mean, if you're certain that certainty is evil, what does that make you? More important, this is dangerous nonsense. If Osama bin Laden and John Ashcroft are both enemies of humanity and decency because they are certain of their beliefs, then so is Mother Teresa. Eli Wiesel, and Jesus. To suggest one is a threat to decency and humanity for being sure that Nazis or jihadists are threats to decency and humanity 
is the very definition of asinine sophistry. Uh, John Dewey's student, Horace Callan, he's one of these American pragmatists I told you about, helped invent the language of pragmatism because it, quote, dissolves dogmas into beliefs, eternities and necessities into change and chance, conclusions and finalities into processes. But men have invented philosophy precisely because they find change, chance, and process too much for them and desire infallible security and certainty, unquote. President Obama paid homage to this grand tradition when he vowed in his inaugural, quote, an end to the petty grievances and false promises, the recriminations and worn out dogmas that for far too long have strangled our politics. Skipping ahead a little bit and I'll pick up here. Science and reason are hailed as the greatest antidotes to dogma because they are more concrete, more provable form of truth. George Eliot writes in Middlemarch, science is properly more scrupulous than dogma. Dogma gives a charter to mistake, but the very breath of science is a contest with mistake and must keep the conscience alive, unquote. Eliot was right, but it's worth noting that this is not an indictment of dogma part and parcel. It is true that many dogmas are built upon mistakes, but that doesn't mean the resulting edifice is not worthwhile. A ship may sink due to the blunder of the captain, but the resulting sunken wreckage beneath the waves may serve as a bountiful reef supporting a wealth of new life. So it is with humanity and her institutions. Columbus, quote unquote, discovered America by mistake, and the world is better for what was built upon that mistake. How many beloved children were born thanks to some capricious accident? We are told that the institution of monogamous marriage between a man and a woman was a mistake, unchartered by the laws of evolution and and unlicensed by the conclusions of science. Maybe so. But what was built upon the rock of that mistake is not so easily or desirably undone, even if we are willing to admit the existence of an error committed somewhere in the ancient recesses of prehistory. If tomorrow science tells us that it would make more sense to make stoplights green instead of red, the price of the resulting chaos would not be worth the gains in rational organization. Indeed, a reasonable man understands that the costs of ripping up the old and tried are often too expensive for the theoretical promises of the new and untried. Lincoln's wisdom was only outstripped by his eloquence when he proclaimed in 1861, The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. In his triumph, Lincoln not only forged a new conception of our nation free of slavery, he forged a new dogma, that it must never return to that evil. If all dogma is wrong, then it must always be considered a live proposition that slavery might in some circumstances be a worthwhile institution. Surely a mechanistic utilitarian could craft a perfectly consistent argument that the slavery of a few few would maximize the happiness of the many. The only plausible utilitarian retort is that the many could not be happy while enjoying the fruits of slave labor. But such an argument hinges on the inconvenient fact that such unhappiness would be made possible only if the majority felt the sting of a properly formed conscience. And such a conscience can only exist when informed by a fundamental dogma about what is right and wrong. 
After all, the history of humanity unfolded for millennia with happy majorities benefiting from the miseries of an enslaved minority. It's a sign of civilizational progress that we, in the West at least, believe that any happiness enjoyed at the expense of another's enslavement isn't a morally legitimate happiness. William F. Buckley understood that dogma is a source of progress because it sets boundaries for acceptable discourse. He illustrated this point nicely when discussing a libertarian's idea of privatizing lighthouses. Buckley thought the idea was absurd, and frankly, Buckley was famously wrong about that, but he noted that he wished the effort success for, quote, if our society seriously wondered whether or not to denationalize the lighthouses, it would not wonder at all whether to nationalize the medical profession. Anyway, but let's get back to science. The idea that dogma is necessarily at war with science is a misunderstanding of the former and a misapplication of the latter. Much of what is true of science is also true of dogma. Both have many moral strikes against them. Science is the author of infinite boons to humanity and need not be put in the dock because it is also the accomplice to countless crimes. The light of reason hails from a flame that burns as often as it warms or illuminates. Likewise, dogma has kept societies backwards and cruel, but is also what keeps forward-thinking and decent societies from becoming backward and cruel. Similarly, where dogma triumphs over science should be obvious. Science is silent on what should be done with the fruits of science. Science can cure illnesses and cause them. Science can destroy cities and build them, save lives and take them. It is the realm outside of science the realm of morality and religion, i.e. the realm of dogma, that tells us what is permissible and what is taboo. The science free of moral dogma is a cartoon villain who creates death rays for sport or ransom. Now, I go on for a while more about all this, but I'll, I'll sort of stop here because I'm not sure this works. But this sort of gets to my point about Sotomayor's, you know, dunking on religious objections to um, abortion. Um, if we're going to use just simply pure intellect and pure reason to decide where life begins, we also can use that standard to decide which lives are valuable or meaningful. You know, we see that unfolding at great pace with the debates and the developments with, with uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia. Um, there are some countries where kids with Down syndrome is, uh, have essentially been eliminated from the population because they're identified in utero. Um, you need to come up with an argument uh, that is grounded in some version of morality about what, where to draw any of these lines. Um, and even on abortion, we've seen that this line drawing thing becomes a big problem for a lot of people. You know, Rick Santorum famously asked Barbara Boxer in the Senate, you know, when does life begins? And Barbara Boxer sort of had a Kinsley gaffe where she said, you know, when you bring the baby home from the hospital, well, you know, we, we can't actually believe that in a, in a, in a healthy and moral society. Um, you know, it can't be that you can basically have, you know, the morality of the purge. Um, so long as you stay within the four walls of a hospital with a, with a live born baby. And, um, and so this is like my, my, my longstanding gripe about, uh, the way progressives talk about religion generally, um, that 
you know, but, and I think it's probably in this chapter somewhere. Um, you know, there was this scene where in the 2004 debate, uh, between George W. Bush and John Kerry, where Kerry, um, was asked about his, I think it was the second debate where he was asked about what role religion plays in his life. And he gives this very eloquent, as far as John Kerry could be eloquent, you know, thing about how it informs everything I do. It informs, you know, how I, why I want to protect the environment and why I want to help the less fortunate and why I want to, you know, do more for the poor. And, you know, it goes on and on and on and all of these things. And it's all perfectly fine political boilerplate. And then like 20 minutes later, the issue of abortion comes up and he says, you know, look, I have my own personal views about abortion that are informed by my faith, but I can't let my, I can't impose my faith on, um, anybody else. Cause that's like a violation of the church state thing or whatever. And like, it was amazing how so many heads nodded as if this was like a profound point when he had just said, you know, a little while earlier that, you know, he is perfectly fine with, uh, you know, taxing people based on his religious faith about spending other people's money based on his religious faith about organizing society and interfering in the economy based on his religious faith. Because again, if you're, if, if your policies on education and poverty and the environment are informed by your religious faith, what you're saying is that your religious faith has given you permission to use the power of the state and the power of taxation um, and the power of, you know, the state's monopoly on violence to impose your vision of society. And I have no objective problem with that because I don't think that you can remove one's religious outlook from someone's moral universe. What I have a problem with is this sort of, uh, you know, sort of logical uh, exemption for the issue of abortion where you can have your religious values inform and your religious doctrines inform your positions on all sorts of political and economic matters and regulatory matters. But then all of a sudden say it would be outrageous for me to have my religious views, um, have any role in abortion and that I cannot impose my religious views about abortion. Well, again, that brings us back to, you know, the problem that, you know, whether you think abortion is murder or not. Um, and you know, I'm not sure that the word murder is the best word to use in you know, in the abortion debate, um, because it sort of sets up a, a whole logical, you know, pattern that becomes problematic in our politics. But whether, and again, whether you think abortion is murder, um, I'm pretty sure that murder is murder, right? You know, like, like killing a two-year-old, um, or a 10-year-old or a 50-year-old is murder. And again, our notions that murder is wrong the cold-blooded, premeditated murder is wrong, are not derived from utilitarianism or pragmatism or, or, or even reason. Um, reason is useful in, in, in bolstering the moral and religious argument about why murder is wrong. Um, and if you're going to say that one's religious views cannot influence you know, the state's policy about uh, such things, uh, you've left yourself with, you know, with no foundation whatsoever to deal with. And I guess that's sort of the reason why I wanted to read the dogma thing is, is, 
again, there are bad dogmas out there for sure. And one of the good things about reason is it helps us test dogma. But you can use reason too aggressively to dismantle dogmas that are extremely valuable. I, you know, um, I don't want to, I don't want to like ban debate and, you know, speech and inquiry into, you know, or criticism of various dogmas, but I don't want to encourage some of that stuff either. I, I feel no, I, I don't think anything is gained in our society by a robust debate about whether we should have slavery back or, you know, the stuff that's sort of going on now at the margins about, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, essentially pedophilia, right? I mean, there are some taboos that are worth keeping as taboos. Um, and, you know, even if you could, and I, I want to be very sincere about this, I could not be persuaded, but even if you could persuade me that a one in a million instance of, you know, man, boy, love was legitimate on the merits or, you know, or laudable or justified or any of that kind of thing, I'd still want the taboo against it, even if that created some sort of profound injustice for that alleged, you know, situation. Um, because the taboo is, is important. I think the taboos against incest are important. Um, reason is uh, ill-equipped to provide the sort of moral uh, guardrails, dogma the dogmatic guardrails that keep a civilized society civilized. And, um, you know, this is sort of a big part of the argument in Suicide of the West is that I really want, you know, us to have more of a dogmatic, pre-rational commitment to things like liberty and limited government. Um, and, you know, one of the things that causes me so much dismay is the way in which people are on the right um, are basically engaging in, in what I, you know, up until fairly recently, I ascribed almost entirely to American, you know, progressives and pragmatists and whatnot, which is sort of declaring war on a lot of conservative dogma. Um, and, you know, I want some, some questions to be settled. And, um, you know, and if, if they shouldn't be settled over time, the moral obviousness of that will manifest itself. Um, but going around looking for reasons to just as a matter of principle declare that, that dogma and cert moral certainty is wrong just because, you know, not like moral certainty around a bad idea is wrong because bad ideas are bad. But moral certainty around good ideas is not wrong just because you don't like the concept of moral certainty. And this is like, you know, the critical race theory stuff is so downstream of the stuff that I philosophically really despise about, you know, critical theory, which is just this assumption that any institutions of power, any established modes of operation that have been developed over generations um, must be suspect. That you need to take the, you know, what Louis Manan called the, the pragmatist razor to every single dogmatic commitment that we have in a society simply because speaking truth to power is um, an automatic, good, and heroic thing, regardless of what the power is doing. You know, and if, if power in and of itself was always wrong, then, um, um, you know, then God is the devil.
in effect. Uh, you know, because if the all if 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 power is always evil, then you know the Almighty um, has to be evil, and it just doesn't work that way. Abraham Lincoln used power for positive reasons. Um, I found his, you know, I think that a lot of his uses of power were lamentable, um, but lamentably necessary. Um, and you can, you know, uh, it gets us to that, you know, that famous thing, you know, from William F. Buckley about moral equivalence, you know, where, uh, I think, I don't know if it was William Fulbright, but it was one of those guys who was crapping all over, who was making all these arguments about how the United States and the Soviet Union were indistinguishable because both of them had big armies and nuclear weapons and blah, 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 blah. And you guys know this, this line, you know, and Buckley says, if you have one person who pushes old ladies in front of buses and another person who pushes old ladies out of the way of oncoming buses, um, you're not, uh, it simply will not do to refer to them both as the sorts of men who push old ladies around. Distinctions matter. You know, intentions matter. Consequences matter. Um, and a moral context matters. And um, so I don't have a great answer for you about how to finally settle the issue of abortion in, in, in American life. Um, I, I, my hunch is, is that America would have been much better off if Roe had never been passed and that this stuff had been um, developed uh, organically from the bottom up in various states. And you'd have some states with very strict rules and you have some states with very lax rules. But my hunch is, is that pretty much all states would have something closer to the norm in Europe than what we have in the United States under the, the Roe and Casey regime now. Um, there are a bunch of people who are um, dunking on, the, on Roberts and some conservatives for doing international comparisons about um, abortion standards. And, you know, Roberts had this thing where he said... Uh, that our, our, was it viability standard is the same as North Korea's and China's or something like that. And, um, and I get, you know, the hypocrisy charge because just to explain, uh, Breyer and a bunch of liberal justices, you know, 10, 15 years ago made uh, a big fuss about looking at opinion polls and, and such in Europe as a guidance to what, the Supreme, how the Supreme Court should interpret the Constitution. And I have ranted about that many times in the past, and I will continue to stand by my position that I think that's ludicrous. But that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is just that it's, you know, you have to, the reason why it's interesting and valuable to look at the way abortion is handled in other countries is not that it should inform what the constitution means because again the constitution is just silent on abortion um but to hear the maximalist pro-choice crowd abortion rights crowd uh any diminution of of the regime of roe and casey which is a base which is basically at the end of the day abortion on demand until birth um because there's so much stuff that's loaded in the the, the health of the mother, including mental health and yada, 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 um, uh, that any diminution of that is on its face a um, outrageous violation of, of women's rights, of individual rights. 
and um and that the idea that regulating abortion after the first trimester or the first 15 weeks you know whatever the number is um uh is an o- incredibly onerous and tyrannical undue burden uh that's a really hard argument to make when uh the most enlightened countries allegedly enlightened countries that progressives point to as being so much more sophisticated and smarter than us are actually um much more restrictive about abortion than than we are and uh i think it's just a useful level setting i don't think it speaks to questions of law and constitutional interpretation but it does speak to sort of what a reasonable standard is and as a sort of level setting you know sort of litmus test about whose rhetoric is more distant from reality um and this is you know this is the other thing that drives me crazy about all this stuff is the um you know and this is a very tyranny cliche's point but um when people talk about you know if you just if you just doom scroll through twitter you'll see lots of this um people talk about how you know jamie raskin had some thing about how the republicans are declaring war on women's health um and all this kind of stuff and it is just always fascinating to me the way if if there is if there's nothing morally or psychologically problematic with with abortion um why the rush to always euphemize it as women's health because you know republicans aren't passing laws against you know treatment of or funding for uh breast cancer research or cervical cancer research um you know republicans and conservatives and pro-lifers are fairly silent on all aspects of women's health except one and that's only if you just choose to define women's health as basically being the right to an abortion at any stage of pregnancy um other than that you know so it's 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 a trojan whore it's a way to hide what you're really talking about in some label that makes it seem outrageous and unreasonable to be against it like who's against women's health um and i get it as a political tactic but i think it's just sort of interesting that it's a necessary political tactic because it turns out that if you actually talk about abortion um it's not as uh it, it is not as clear and cut and dried for a lot of americans so you have to hide it in these other notions to make it seem um easier to sort of uh be on one side of so anyway i didn't i don't know i'm i'm so i did not sleep much last night and i'm in a weird place um because we have no tv here and um it's been raining for like three days and uh and my um my body clock is more like a body stopwatch because of all this weird jet lag stuff even though i didn't fly out here so i apologize if i've been rambling or incoherent or any of that kind of stuff. I think tomorrow, uh, assuming that the platoon is better rested and Sergeant Holka says it's okay, we'll probably just do a drive time thing and maybe we'll talk a little bit about the Fox stuff um, and some of the other things that I've uh, written of late and whatever else is going on in the news. Um, and I do want to say again, thanks to everybody who's you know been so supportive and encouraging um, in recent 
days um, or weeks or whatever it is. Um, and uh, I have many tales, which I'll save for the G file of, of uh, the canines who now are convinced that we're never going back to Washington um, and, uh, and are kind of going semi wild on me. Um, and other than that, Please, if you can, become a paid member of the Dispatch community. We got big stuff coming down the pike. Um, I promise I'll get my act together better on the podcast stuff. Um, it's just been kind of disorganized, and there's just been a lot of behind-the-scenes phone stuff and whatever. Um, and the time zone thing, I, I am just amazed at how much, every time I come to California, um, or I should say to the West Coast, because I'm not in California right now, but I'm usually when I come to the West Coast, it's California. I'm amazed at what a big difference three hours is. Like if I get up at 7 a.m., which is late for me at home, but if I get up at 7 a.m. here, that's freaking 10 a.m. on the East Coast. And like for me, 10 a.m. on the East Coast, that's like a huge chunk of my day is already gone. And um, it just, you know, I, I kind of, you know, there's one of these things that people don't like to talk about in the cable news industry, but like um, the ratings for cable news are really bad on the west coast and every time i'm out here for a prolonged period of time i kind of get it because it just kind of feels like the news is already old by the time you turn on your tv you know like the morning stuff is um the breaking news stuff is already passed you feel like the conversation has already started without you it feels that way on twitter um you know i'll i'll get the rebroadcast of of NPR and it's just a weird psychological disconnect that it's, it's, it's like old news already. And I don't know if this is at all interesting or even true. Uh, it's just something that came into my head. So, um, I'll leave it at that. And, um, again, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.